Hello and welcome to Football Unfocused. I'm Mark and uh, this is Matt. Say hello, Matt. Hello, Matt. Um, that's what the that's <laughs> yeah, it's very uh, Morecambe and wise. Um, <laughs> anyone who hasn't listened to this before, this is a loosely football based podcast in which uh, Matt and I discuss some issues that we have rightly or wrongly decided are worthy of discussion and uh, interest. Uh, whether or not you agree is neither here nor there. We're doing this for ourselves and our own indulgence and misguided sense of self-importance, not because we expect anybody to in any way listen, endorse or agree with any of the opinions expressed, which will in many cases be factually incorrect and entirely misguided, particularly from you, Matt. Would you say that's a... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I like the way, you know, it's it's... it's interesting sort of we we're doing this during a pandemic and um you know it's it's an interesting way of sort of saying if you if 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 you if you listen and you don't like it then that's your fault you know yeah yeah yeah, absolutely (laughs) as our as our great and glorious leader uh and his uh collection of uh uh ill-equipped uh incompetent cronies love to say if you are suffering with the after effects of COVID-19 it's because you didn't have enough common common sense that's why you called it in the first place or you're too uh, stupid fat or lazy um to have uh, you've put yourself in a vulnerable position you've, it's yeah. about personal responsibility it's nothing to do with us and our inept uh, responses to yeah. and that is the same approach that i've brought to this podcast where i say <laughs> you the listener we have nothing but contempt for you we're spoon feeding you some absolute gold here but if you don't like it fuck off <laughs> yeah. today's topic uh, mark yes matthew please remind me what today's topic is <laughs> So today's topic is um, international competition versus elite football club competition. So the first point I was going to mention was about <clears throat> the two greatest players that we currently have at the moment um, mm. of a generation, and they haven't won. You know, their their greatness is probably better reflected in their European titles than in their World Cup or in their international um, status. Even though you would say. Well, Cristiano Ronaldo won the European Cup. <clears throat> um, Messi won... Um, the European Championships. European Championships, excuse me. And Messi has won the... Um, the Copper America. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, but but in terms of World Cups, you know, when, when you think of previous mm. greats, Pele and, and Maradona, um, you know, that was sort of their scene as their pinnacle. Um, but but our yep. great players at the moment haven't achieved those same things, and so I wonder if that has moved the emphasis away from the World Cup um, international scene and, and and placed it greatly or to a greater extent um, within the elite European football. Yeah, no, I, I agree with it, but I think that the, the reasons for it are not necessarily as simple as they may at first appear, because I think that. Whilst it is true to say that um, Messi and Ronaldo, who you're obviously referring to, aren't as defined uh, in terms of analysing their career, they're not as defined by success on international scale as would have been the case um, the likes of Pelé and Maradona and Beckenbauer and Cruyff. Um, but I think the reason for that isn't necessarily because of a 
sort of decline in importance of international football. I think a lot of it is to do with um, coverage and interconnectivity because um, in up until the probably the you know early to mid-1990s, and I realised that when I talk like this, I am talking very much from a kind of UK perspective, and it is important to stress that I think that the strength and importance and centrality of international football is still much stronger in other parts of the world, South America in particular. I think that, you know, that is still very much, you know, the be all and end all. Um, but I think that up until that, that period in the, in, in the nineties, the majority, the vast majority of uh, consumers of football, casual viewers, or even fanatics of football were only seeing sort of, you know, global superstars every four years on the telly, in certainly in, in a live setting. They wouldn't necessarily know huge amounts about them kind of in the intervening uh, period. So when you ask people about, uh, when you hear people talking about Pelé, they're rarely talking about all the things he did with uh, Santos. They talk about his, you know, his career is defined from the, you know, by the four World Cups uh, from 1958 to 1970. And, you know, making uh, an amazing impact as a teenager, uh, getting, uh, uh, sorry, in 58, winning it again in 62, being kicked off the pitch in 66 uh, in England, and then having a kind of, you know, uh, an amazing um, sort of swan song to his career in 1970 in a Brazil team that is widely regarded as the best international team of all time. And they would, but, but I think that that was more kind of, you know, culturally significant because that was the majority, that was pretty much the only time that people were seeing these players play. Same with, um, you know, when I think about my own, from my own perspective, first World Cup that had a big impact on me because I'd have been old enough to watch it. I was, uh, what would I have been, eight years old for the 1990 World Cup. And all of the build up to it would have been a, you know, about Maradona because Argentina were going into that tournament as uh, the reigning world champions. Maradona had had an amazing few years in, uh, in playing in Italy for Napoli. He was without doubt the best best player in the world. But I, had, I hadn't seen him. And even though in the time between the two World Cups, he'd gone to Napoli and, you know, the narrative around that is always that he's sort of single-handedly, even that's slightly unfair to his teammates, single-handedly won the title. And by 1990, he'd also won the UEFA Cup with Napoli. That was the first time that Napoli had ever won the league, by the way, or any team from Southern Italy had ever won the league. Uh, and then a year after that, that World Cup, he won the league again with um, Napoli before his sort of career and life uh, descended. But at that 1990 World Cup, even though that you know that wasn't Maradona necessarily at his best, he didn't have his best tournament, although he still got to the final. That would have been probably the the the, the last sorry the, the last time that people in this country certainly would have seen Maradona since four years earlier with a, you know when he won the World Cup and did the whole hand of God and the amazing slalom goal against um, taking on about six English players and humiliating uh, Peter Shilton. <laughs> Um and. Uh, so I do think that that plays a big part of it. And I think that you look at the, you, you, you use the, the example of Messi and Ronaldo. So, you know, in today's world, every single kick that both of those players, um, every time they kick a football, it's on telly and it's viewable from this country. Champions League, which is probably the single biggest, um, the growth of the Champions League in, in importance and scale 
and quality is probably the single biggest factor in in undermining in some people's eyes the importance and prestige of international football and and it is at that kind of champions league level that Messi and Ronaldo have been uh, most most prominent and from which their careers will be defined i think Messi's won what was it uh, four Champions League is it yep 2006 2009 2011 2015 Ronaldo's won he won one with the Manx and then four with Real Madrid is it so that's five you know and and, and just their performances the, the fact that they're they're ahead of every other player in terms of the amount of goals scored in that competition the amount of big games that have been settled big moments by those players um it kind of take it takes the emphasis of the need to then go to a World Cup and have a kind of career-defining performance at that World Cup where you do a Maradona and, you know, take your team all the way. And every time Messi has played in a World Cup, that pressure has been on him, the expectation of well, people telling, you know, that slightly, I regard it as a slightly lazy narrative that um, uh, he needs to do something amazing in this World Cup to be considered the greatest player of all time as a lot of people believe he is. Um, and I think that's unfair for a number of reasons. All, primarily because he's he is Argentina's record goal scorer. I think he might even be, he's, he's moving even towards the record caps, which is remarkable when you consider how, how long Zanetti played uh, for. He might, I need to check that, he might still be some way off in terms of caps. But he is without doubt uh, probably second only to Maradona in terms of uh, the impact he's had on the Argentine national team. And he's actually had some really, really good World Cups and some massive moments. And uh, he has won them the uh, Copa America. Every single time Argentina are in any sort of trouble in qualification for any of these tournaments, he's always the one who bails them out. So he's absolutely emblematic. Ronaldo, of course, the ironic thing about Ronaldo is that he's been the talisman for Portugal for, you know, 15-odd years. And probably his weakest tournament on a personal level was the one that Portugal actually won. Because in um, in 2016, I think by the final, he was in, didn't he get injured? I think he had to come off quite early. And the, the guy who replaced him was the guy who scored the the, the winner uh, in the final against France. And, uh, and he didn't, he wasn't actually amazing for, quite long periods in that tournament whether he was um, injured or not um, I don't know but um, but yeah that I mean I doubt, I doubt that particularly bothers him because he was still egotistical John Terry style enough to kind of you know kick, kick back on and lifting that trophy and making sure you're kind of front and centre of everything and making it all about you um, but I guess I'd, I don't know whether or not all of these things are, are enough to sort of prove the decline of um, the importance of international football. So I guess, well, my next point would be, okay, well, the the the, co- the, the best coaches in the world are not coaching um, international teams per se. And, and as a result, that is arguably having an impact on the quality of the actual football that we're seeing on, a, on an international stage. So it was Diego Simone who um, said in 2017, why um, Pellegrini uh, is not a Chile, Klopp is not a Germany, Ancelotti is not an Italy. Many coaches, possibly the best, cannot coach their national sides because they're, um, uh, yeah, they're focused on their on their domestic um, duties. Yeah. And 
and and so the 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 quality of the actual football is arguably uh less interesting less entertaining than um than it is on an international stage yeah i i, I definitely agree with that i think that with with a few exceptions the, the i think that a lot of the problem is that as consumers of um uh kind of 21st century football are spoiled in a lot of ways because the emergence of six or seven kind of superpower clubs that attract all of the best talent from all over the world means that, and obviously those clubs are not restricted by picking players based on their nationality. So they can recruit players from anywhere in the world. So some of the Barcelona teams in recent years, the current Bayern Munich team, the Manchester City and Liverpool teams over the last uh, couple of years, they're all built with players, not just from their continent, but from all over the world. And they are all elite footballers. And combined with the uh, elite coaches that all of them have got, uh, they are taking the standard of football in those competitions, in those leagues, to a level probably not seen before. Um, international football clearly is restricted by the parameters of you can only pick from from you know your your nation state. So, if you're a country like Wales, who over the last ten years have significantly overachieved um, for a country of their size in terms of qualifying now for two consecutive European Championships and getting close to qualifying for a World Cup, you know, I'd say they've got a decent chance of qualifying for the next World Cup. Um, they will always, unless they get incredibly lucky, they are always going to be a side that um, are going to be heavily reliant on two or three top-level players, and then the rest are going to be sort of filling in the gaps. So you, you'll have a you know, a right back who plays in the championship, a, you know, a goalkeeper who can't get in his Premier League team, uh, you know, and, and around them, they'll be, oh, look, he plays for Real Madrid, he plays for Juventus. Um, obviously, club football doesn't have that limitation. So you're not going to, you don't have to just accept that the uh, the fullback is substandard. You can go and buy a better fullback. And as a result, the quality of the entire team is greater. Um, clearly, there are some countries that are so, you know, they're, 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 their talent pool is so abundant that, that's not so much of an issue. So, you know, Brazil and Spain and Germany, even to an extent, England these days, you know, who we shouldn't underestimate, are are really, they genuinely have some brilliant, brilliant players. The sort of players I never thought I'd see this country produce. The way that we're coaching players now and the the type of sort of technical uh, players that are coming through that that aren't as reliant on the traditional English uh, um, qualities of, you know, physicality and and all that sort of stuff. They're, They're genuine top-class technical footballers coming through. So there, there are exceptions of countries that can, that can you know, build a, a squad of top quality just from, you know, within those parameters. But the vast majority of, um, of countries, you know, can't do that. And so they're always going to have, you know, even, even um, overachieving countries like uh, Belgium and Croatia who, you know, and Uruguay who – Compared to you know, as a, their their population are massively um, um, uh, punching above their weight in terms of their performance on the international scale. Belgium have been ranked the number one side in the world for quite a few years. 
don't know, what's the population of Belgium? Probably about, what, seven or eight million, something like that. Cause I think Holland's 11 million, and I think Belgium's slightly smaller. But, I don't know, fact fans out there can check that. Um but that, but that's pretty remarkable that they've been able to, uh, at the moment, having you know their their golden generation. But even within that side, there'll be there'll be a couple of players who probably would you know wouldn't get a game for Barcelona, but you know they'll slot into what is the top ranked national team in the world. Um, so so it's so I think a lot of that is to do with the the prevalence of the massively powerful, uh, the small collection of massively powerful clubs and the coaches. I think a lot of that is to do with, I I think that the evolution of the international coach has uh, gone in a direction over recent years where it's seen almost as a bit of a a semi-retirement. Well, no, no, actually that's, that's not, that's not actually true. It goes one of two ways. You're either, you either now become, an international manager, almost as an introduction to management. Ryan Giggs is an example of that. Gareth Southgate, I know he'd managed Middlesbrough for a few years, but he'd had a long period of time out of club football and he starts to go through the England coaching structure and ends up managing the the first team. Even uh, someone like uh, Joachim Lowe, World Cup winning coach of Germany, was Jürgen Klinsmann's assistant, didn't have a huge club football pedigree and is now one of the longest serving German national team managers of all time. And in the past, you know, take England, for example, there was this argument throughout the career of Brian Clough when he was at his absolute prime, in his absolute prime, during his Derby and Nottingham Forest years, winning European Cups and league titles, that he should be the England manager. And at any point, he would have almost certainly jacked in his club football job, even though he was managing top-level teams in top-level competitions, to take the international job because it was the pinnacle. It was the, you know, that was the ultimate honour to get to manage your, your national team. And that, that was the, still regarded as the sort of highest level. Whereas I think now, someone like Pep Guardiola and Jose Mourinho, they have quite openly spoken about how they would, I think they would both quite like to manage their countries. I think Jose Mourinho would manage Portugal. I think Pep Guardiola as a slight, despite playing many, many games for Spain, I think he has a slightly more complicated uh, relationship with uh, the, the Spanish nation um, because he's, uh, I think he's in favour of uh, Catalonian independence. So he's actually expressed a desire to manage Brazil um, in the past. But e- either way, uh, that's like, they see that as the, their last jobs in football. So they'll, they'll do all they want to do from club football and then they'll finish their career by managing at international level. And, that would not have been the case before. You know, someone like Brian Clough would have happily um, gone into uh, international management um, at any stage of his career. Bobby Robson, when he became England manager in the uh, early 1980s, still had, uh, he, you know, he was on, he'd had a 10 odd years of amazing success at Ipswich Town. He turned Ipswich Town from this small provincial club into, they, they won the FA Cup. They'd had a, uh, I think two second places in the league where they went into the last day of the season with the league title still very much up for grabs, won the UEFA Cup, amazing period of time. And, you know, he could have probably taken his pick of club jobs at that time, but gets offered England, bang, he's gone. And, but to show that he was still very much a a sort of premium manager, he had a, even after the 1990 World Cup when he left England, he had another 
14, 15 years of elite level management. You know, he goes off after England. He goes to manage Barcelona and PSV Eindhoven and Newcastle and Porto. So that I think that goes to show that, you know, the coaches see it very differently, see the proposition of international management very differently. It's either a it's either a, a an introduction into coaching or it is a bit of a retirement home. And I don't know whether that has is to the detriment of international football in terms of even even if you take away the, the point about quality, which I guess is difficult to prove, it certainly is from a perception perspective because I think the elite coach is not wanting to, to not seeing that as the pinnacle at the peak of their career probably does, even if it's subconsciously, undermine the perception of international football and the importance of international football. Do you think it's contributed to the the perception? that um, the biggest league in the world, the Premier League in England, um, yeah. not matched by the fact that England aren't the greatest football team in the world. And so as a result, people are like, well, you know, it's great that we're, we're supporting the biggest league in the world or we could support, you know, the 10th the biggest international team in the world. And, and so people choose the former. Um Whereas if England was the place where the biggest league in the world and the biggest international team in the world, then maybe international football as a whole would benefit from that. But the fact that, you know, uh, England aren't particularly, you know, one of the best teams in the world or not consistently, as a result, the whole of international football um, has possibly suffered. Or do you think that's a bit too uh, England-centric? You will... No, no, because I guess we can only talk from the perspective of uh, how we're experiencing football. And, you know, this is where we live. So, um, you know, it's natural to kind of see it that way. I think that um, my view would be that rather than it being about uh, England aren't the best team in the world, but I'm used to watching the best league in the world, therefore it's a bit of a, you know, I'm going to stick with the best league in the world. I don't mm. think it's necessarily that, but what I do think, and, and I, I'll tell you a, a key point, which I always think um, there's a, there's a couple of key moments in every season that really emphasise this issue. Whenever there's there'll be a run of Premier League games, and, it, and it's and, it, and you get it more in that that first quarter of the season, the, the sort of late summer, early autumn period. Season's just getting going in the Premier League, so it'll be three or four games in from August, and then first weekend in September, bang, it all stops, international break. Pretty much any football fan you speak to fucking hates that. And the reason they hate it is because the, the Premier League's just getting going, it's getting exciting, the football's getting you know really good, and the teams are hitting their straps, and then they all go away and then playing these, particularly when they're qualifiers, some, the games are often so uncompetitive and dull to watch. You know, England will just have a you know a four-one, you know, away win against um, you know, like Lithuania or someone like that, and people just lose interest because you know, for, again, looking at it from an England-centric perspective, England have been have developed really since failing to qualify for Euro two thousand eight. They're developing a team that find qualifying for tournaments exceptionally, almost painfully easy. 
but then go to tournaments and underperform, with the exception of the 2018 World Cup. But even then, you, I think you could make a strong case that they got a favourable draw and weren't actually that good. And they came up against a decent team for the first time in the semi-final and got beaten. Um, but in other countries, so say I used the example of South America at the beginning of this. In other countries, that initial international break, that's the bit they're going to be looking forward to. Almost they're all elite South American players, even, you know, play outside of, they almost all of them play in Europe, particularly the Brazilians and the Argentinians. So all of a sudden you've got two or three international fixtures in a two-week international break period. All these, you know, heroes and international superstars are going home and they're playing um, matches in their home countries in front of adoring crowds who are exceptionally excited about uh, that prospect most of the year they're they're out of reach so it's that you know they're on the the flip side of it they're really looking forward to these uh, these international breaks so i think that that is that, you know, the, the, what i guess the point that proves is that is that a lot of it depends on the you know the perspective of 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 kind of where you sit the the, the country in which you're consuming football there's, there is no doubt that the point you make about the Premier League, the, the, the standard of football in the Premier League is now so good, particularly the, the top clubs in the Premier League. The standard of football is so good that it does often feel when you watch international football like a bit of a, you know, like you, you've gone from watching a Premier League game to maybe a sort of mid-table championship match. Um, until you get to like knockout stages of the Euros or the World Cup. In fact, a lot, a lot of the time, in my view, the, the European championships are a better quality competition than the World Cup is because I think they, they, well, they've ruined it a little bit now. I say they've ruined it. I'm very careful saying things like that because I know that by opening it up to 24 teams, that's enabled Northern Ireland and Wales and Albania, I'm thinking about the last tournament, Albania and Hungary to qualify for their first tournaments in a long time. Scotland are in the next ones. And that's fantastic. That's good for football to spread the love. But it does mean, you know, whether you like it or not, that, you know, the, the quality does diminish a little bit in those earlier rounds because teams that are not quite as good are qualifying and often that means they'll turn up at the tournament and take quite a negative approach, try and sort of kill the game and nick a 1-0. Whereas the European Championships, when it was a 16-tournament, um, uh, sorry, 16-team tournament, the quality from the very beginning was so unbelievable because they knew that they, they dropped their standard by a percentage you're going to end up. You lose your first group game. You're in. You're in big trouble. And as a result, you know some of the best tournaments ever. Euro 2000. I'd, I'd say to this day is probably the best international tournament I've ever watched. It was absolutely unbelievable. You know, 2004 was brilliant as well. 2008. So um, I think that you know that yeah, this is the this is the problem, isn't it? You know, and it might be that we we sound like you know sort of spoiled. Um, um, like little Englanders watching our Premier League football and 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 thinking everything else is rubbish by comparison. But you know, if you are watching, you know, uh, Man City against Liverpool every other week and seeing the high level stuff that that happens there, and then all of a sudden it's um, you know England against Slovakia and settled by a, a scrappy late Harry Kane penalty, you you do. It's difficult not to lose the will to live a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the final thing I was just going to mention was about um, the administration of international football and the administration of sort of the European 
um, tournaments um, or the the European leagues. That is. So, so I guess I'm having in mind, you know, the the what would be regarded as the cronyism of of FIFA. You can contrast that maybe with some might argue sort of professionalism of those that run the Premier League, those that were accommodated, you know, those players who wanted to take the knee of the Black Lives Matter um, emblem on their shirts for a time. Um, you know, maybe they're, they're just a bit more quick on their toes, um, more in touch with the game. And, and as a result, they, they provide a, you know, go, we'll go back to that sort of a better product. That's a really interesting uh, perspective, that, because it, it's really weird because you are you are right. On the face of it, the willingness of the Premier League to embrace and support and promote the taking of the knee before every game in support of the Black Lives Matter movement looks uh, like it's a, it's a really sort of progressive move that is representative of this kind of open organisation that's got its finger on the pulse and they're at the forefront of social change. Contrasting that with FIFA, who, to describe their history as sketchy, it would be <laughs> <laughs> would be pretty kind. Uh, I mean, uh, where would you start with FIFA? Blimey. And you, could, you, could def- you could do about eight podcasts just, just on FIFA. Um, I mean, they're almost comically shameful as an organisation. But but I think it would be wrong to sort of make that comparison and to sort of paint the Premier League as, uh, as you know, a bastion of moral fortitude because they're definitely not. I mean, the Premier League will accept ownership of, of any of its sort of member clubs from any source, wherever they got their money. I mean, some of the, you know, if you really dug, dug deep enough and looked at the ethics behind, you know, the ownership models of uh, certain English football clubs, uh, you, you, you're going to have a job uh, then taking the moral high ground against any other, you know. Yes, yes, of course, it is objectively uh, appalling, confusing at best, to see the 2022 World Cup awarded to uh, Qatar and you look at the scandals that have broken since then with the building of the stadium by people essentially being, you know, uh, being used for slave labour, the amount of uh, people who have died building those stadiums, the evidence now about the, you know, shady goings-on behind them getting the bid in the first place. And that is, on all levels, disgusting. And anyone with... Uh, any sense of uh, moral fortitude is is appalled by all of that, and and also FIFA's lack of um, you know quick action on uh, you know issues of sort of gender and uh, ethnic diversity as well, and and, and the ins- insensitivity that they show on many of these issues. But then, you know, the Premier League has had uh, you know owners buying clubs backed by ill-gotten gains in terms of you know state using state assets and that they shouldn't necessarily have or, you know, actual, you know, I mean, one club in the Premier League is essentially owned by a nation state. And in that nation, you know, it's not particularly easy to be female or homosexual. Um, And, you know, (laughs) where on earth do you, you know, choose between who kind of has the upper hand sort of morally between some of those uh, uh some and, and you only have to look the thing that always makes me laugh 
is that football fans be, being, you know, sort of partisan and tribal uh, often by nature and unable to kind of see the wood for trees in many cases will cast uh, aspersions about, oh, look at, you know, a the way that Man City and Chelsea, they've lost their soul, they've, you know, they've bought success and all that sort of stuff. As soon as there's a rumour in the press that somebody from, a, you know, a, a mystery shake from Saudi Arabia is interested in pouring billions into their club, they're absolutely all over it, you know, all over it. Suddenly they forget about all those objections. Oh, if it's going to be us now, and that means we're going to suddenly be taken over by a, a guy who's going to uh, allow us to buy any, you know, we'll, we'll buy Lionel, Lionel Messi and Neymar. Uh, some of those objections are forgotten about. I'm not thinking of any club in particular, Newcastle, but um, you know it's uh, it's um, just really interesting when when those situations uh, occur. So I just think ultimately it's a pretty depressing conclusion that all of football is so massively compromised by money and driven by money. That there are there are very few uh, individuals or institutions or organisations that have any sort of uh, uh, leg to stand on when it comes to uh, uh, moral high grounds. So, so maybe we will say that the the running of those organisation is negligible at best. <laughs> well, on that bombshell, let's say goodbye then, Matt. Yeah, yeah. See you later. <laughs> I was going to say to Lou, but yeah. yeah. Bye then. Goodbye from the host house. Goodbye.